Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, uh, the scripture says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by Every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I don't know if you know this, but Chase Owen is quite the biker. I think he's training for a triathlon, which means insanity. Um, I remember one of my college roommates, I saw him training for a marathon, and I was driving the car and and he looked like he was about to die. Like, why would you do that to yourself? But you're awesome. Praise God. But if Chase had a bike with no wheels and you saw him walking down the road just carrying the frame, it wouldn't make much sense, would it? Make even less sense than training for a triathlon. It just wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. Or if you went to a restaurant and, and, and the wait staff were doing an impeccable job and the, the surroundings and the setting were outstanding and they bring you the menu and there's absolutely nothing on it and you learn that at this restaurant they serve no food or maybe the sermon's going a bit long and you check your watch you have one of those old style watches but there's no hands it wouldn't do you any good uh, it wouldn't fulfill its purpose there are certain components and that are necessary for things to fulfill their purposes there are fundamental parts that are necessary for things to function properly, and that's true for the church. It's true for the church. And in this text, I think we see two essential parts of the church for it to function properly. We see the work of pastors, and we see the work of members. The work of pastors and members. And all through this passage, there's this theme, this resonating idea of building, of growing of maturing. So that's what we're going to look at tonight in this text. Pastors and members and our work in bringing about the growth of the church. Of course, this comes in the book of Ephesians, which Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 present one of the most astounding pictures and descriptions of what God has done for us in Christ, how God has saved us, how God has united us in one body, in the church, what God has done. And then Ephesians chapters 4 through 6 talk about, okay, here's what you do now as those who have been united by God. You've been united by God in one body. Okay, here's how you live that out. Here's what you do. The chapters 1 through 3 are essentially like an exposition of what God's done. Then chapters 4 through 6 are an exhortation of what you should do now. So there's a lot about that tonight for us as the body, what we should do. First of all, pastors build up the church. Like much of the book of Ephesians, 
Chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, presents an exalted picture of Jesus Christ. Using Old Testament language, it talks about the victorious Christ who reigns supreme and he gives gifts to his church. Gives gifts to his church. And it's in that context that we pick up in verse 11, some of the specific gifts that he gives. So Ephesians 4 and verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. These are gifted people. In fact, one of, the, one of the things that makes all of them similar is the role of teaching, of proclaiming truth. But tonight our focus is going to be limited to pastors, teachers, which grammatically these go together. Gifted by Christ. So essentially being a pastor, teacher, isn't just something that you get because you've achieved some degree it's, it's something you are because of the work of the Holy Spirit and because of Jesus Christ. Acts 20 says of overseers that the Holy Spirit made you overseers. Here in Ephesians 4, in speaking of pastors and teachers, they're, they're given. Jesus gave them to the church. They are pastors and they are teachers. Incidentally, this is the only place in the New Testament where you find the, the word pastor referring to this role, or in the ESV it's translated shepherds. And what are they to do? Well, that, we learn that because they're also called teachers. And so this is one and the same group of people. They are shepherds who are teachers. That's what shepherds do. They teach. Well, we see that these gifts are not just for ourselves. Look at what it says there, their purpose in verse 12. Shepherds and teachers are given to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. We have a specific purpose that that these gifts from Jesus Christ, just like the spiritual gifts, are not for ourselves. They're for the upbuilding of the body. So so when you think about the church, and it's it's helpful especially for pastors to, to remember that The church doesn't exist for us, but we exist for the church. The the, the church is not about pastors, but pastors are there to equip and help the church. It's not the church's role to, like, exalt or lift up these leaders. No, quite the opposite. It's the pastor's role to shepherd the church. And look at specifically what we do, how pastors build up the church. Look at it there. Equip the saints. Equip the saints. Jesus gave pastor teachers to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The word equip there is a word used all through your New Testament. It's a really common word, translated in a variety of ways. It's a medical term. It's a medical term. One of the cool things I like to think in the background, very likely Paul was with Luke when he wrote Ephesians. And uh, this, in fact, this section particularly is full of medical language. This, this part at the end about the body and the joints and the ligaments is medical language. And, and this idea of equipping is also a word from essentially the, word, the, the world of surgery and medicine. That this word is commonly used in the ancient world to describe the setting of a, of a broken bone. It, it takes something that is broken and it puts it right. It sets it right, and that's, a, I think, a good illustration of what pastors do. We equip the saints. It's also used in the New Testament with the idea of completing what is lacking. 
that there's something lacking and, and here is a, a role of a pastor to, to fill up or to complete or bring about what's lacking. This is the word in, that is found in 2 Timothy 3.17 or 3.17 when it's talking about pastors that, that we are there to, that we are equipped by the word of God for every good work. That it's sufficient to equip us. So the word of God equips us and notice pastors equip, they prepare, they train the saints for the work of ministry. So we prepare and equip the saints for a specific work, the work of ministry. That's just the general word in the New Testament for service. It's the word for deacon, serving. Every Christian is to serve. The pastor's role in building up the church is equipping the saints for that service. So we equip, first of all, for service. There's a tendency to think, or there can be a tendency to think, well, well okay, so service, ministry, is what pastors do on our behalf. No, pastors exist to equip the body to serve. The idea is every member of the body engaged in service. Pastors, their role is equipping and empowering and helping and training and encouraging and exhorting the body to serve. So pastors build up the church by equipping for service. Secondly, we equip for maturity. Look at what it says. We equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So there's two things there that we equip the church for. The work of ministry and for building up the body of Christ is where we're going to see in just a minute that this idea of building up the body is something all of the body takes part in. But look at the purpose in verse 13. Look at the goal here. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. That there's a, there's a purpose in our equipping and that purpose and that goal is to bring every believer to maturity. It's what we want. It's what we're desiring. It's what our equipping is intended to bring about. It's to bring about maturity to, to mature manhood until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son. Now look at that, that phrase. That's what we're striving for. Unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son. And notice it's the faith. It's like in Jude, the idea that we contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The work of equipping the church is intended to bring us to a unity based on the faith. And friends, that's what our unity is in. It's in the faith. What unifies the church? What unifies the church is what we believe specifically about Jesus Christ. What do we believe? What is the faith? Well, that's what we're growing in. And not only that, but it's also the knowledge of the Son that we are equipping for maturity and this maturity is in terms of the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the son the reality is unity cannot and will not exist in the church if it's not based on the faith and the knowledge of the son or or essentially if you get you'll get what they talked about last night just a group of people that just gather together based on artificial or worldly standards no uh, what gathers us together what groups us together is the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son. Now, so here you see the importance of the faith and knowledge of the Son in this process of growing in maturity. Growing in maturity. This is one of the reasons why we gather as the church. And, and friends, a lot of people that we know, they think in terms of the church as essentially just another experience for them to have. And it is an experience, isn't it? 
But people oftentimes go to church expecting an experience rather than expecting the knowledge of the Son. Let me address that for just a minute. Because again, it is an experience, but here's the key question. What kind of an experience is it? Is is it an experience that leads to maturity and to knowledge of the Son? That's what we're striving for. And that's what we want. And I would just say, that's what biblical teaching should bring about. And singing the Word. You understand, the reason you sing in church is it is a ministry of the Word. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. One of the ways that happens is through singing. It's a ministry of the Word. So is that an experience? Oh yeah, it is. But what is the purpose of the experience? It is knowledge of the Son. And here you see, over and over, you'll find it in the New Testament, the importance of knowledge of the Son in the unity of the church. If your unity isn't based on knowledge of the man Jesus Christ, what's it going to be based on? It needs to be based on knowledge of him. Let me give you an example of why that's important and why the common idea about experience, which I think you'll understand what I mean as I explain this, why knowledge is so much more important, or you're not going to have a right Christian experience apart from knowledge of the Son. Let's say someone claims, as they often do, well, the Bible is full of errors. It's not going to be helpful to respond, man, I just had an amazing experience last night at church. Or, wow, we just, the music last night was amazing, and it may have been, and that's good, and that's wonderful, and that's great. Or if someone says, you know what, as, as some people who call themselves Christians would say, and do say, in this town. Well, the Apostle Paul, and the Bible in general, is quite degrading to women. I mean, how do you answer that? You don't answer it with an experience. Well, well, you know, tonight we've got, the kids are doing handbells. Well, that's all well and fine, but that doesn't answer the question. Or, another common assertion in our day that you'll hear, Jesus never taught anything against homosexuality. Well, how do you answer that? (laughs) Whoa, this Christmas time at our church, live camels. It's going to be amazing. And our pastor, he is so cool. He sometimes rides a zip line into the pulpit. Or maybe like a guy that I know rode a motorcycle into the pulpit. Wow! That's not going to help answer those common, serious questions. It's only through the knowledge of the Son that those questions and those serious affronts to the truth of the Word of God can be dealt with. We need to equip for maturity. Athletes want to mature, don't they? They want to to develop their skills. They want to get stronger. They want to get faster. They want to get better. Friends, what we're equipping for is way more important and significant than anything an athlete takes part in. That's fleeting and passing. What we're talking about are the eternal realities of God, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's the kind of maturity we need to be equipping for. Friends, the New Testament in, in the Scripture Churches and Christians are rebuked for a lack of maturity. This is, you know, the the book of 1 Corinthians depicts a church full of all kinds of problems. And the first problem addressed is division. And, And the root of the division in the Corinthian example was immaturity. Look at it, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 3. 
But I, brothers, could not address you. Notice he calls them brothers. These are Christians. Paul, Paul assumes and, and speaks to them as if they're, they're believers. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. Now here, look at what characterizes them, and look at the fruit of immaturity in their midst. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, which I would just add, these are interrelational sins taking place in the body. While there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? The division in Corinth, part of the reason for it was immaturity. Immaturity because they were acting like infants. The author of Hebrews in chapter 5 likewise rebukes his audience. He has a lot of strong things to say to his audience. One of the rebukes he levels at them is their immaturity, Hebrews 5.14. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So we equip for maturity. We equip for service. We equip for maturity. Thirdly, we equip for stability. Stability. Look at it. Verse to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that he is our goal. He's full grown and we want to be like him. So that, here's the purpose in verse 14, so that we, all of us believers, may no longer be children. So you see there we're equipping for stability. Not, we don't want to be like children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We don't want to be like children. We want to be mature. We want to equip for stability. What does maturity look like? It looks like not being a child. Children are naive. They'll believe just about anything. You can convince them you're a monkey trainer. Uh, You can convince them of all kinds of kooky things. Christians are not supposed to be like that. We're not supposed to be easily distracted. We're not supposed to lack discipline. Children lack discipline. That's why God gives them parents. There's a danger to immaturity, and the danger is instability. Our equipping is to stabilize Christians. Look at it, what it says. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. So waves that move and just you go here and you go there and then there's every wind of doctrine. You know, there's these fad teachings that come and go. I mean, it's just amazing how many have just come and gone in the last 20 years. It's astounding. I mean, the issues that, the, the kooky issues that I was dealing with in seminary whenever I went in the early 2000s, those issues are gone now. And now there's a whole host of new, bizarre, weird winds of doctrines. They just keep coming and they keep going. And they, they, they toss people to and fro. And people will follow this one for a while. And they'll follow that one for a while. That's not what we want in the church. Pastors need to equip the saints for stability. For stability. Look what else he goes on to, to say. What maturity is to protect us from. Carried about by every wind of doctrine. By human cunning. That's a cool word. That's a word for loaded dice. Loaded dice, somebody tricking you with sleight of hand. You know, that's how false teachers operate. False teachers don't say, all you who enter here abandon all hope, right? You want to come follow me because I'm going to lead you to hell. That's not what they do. They false advertise. they, They use human cunning. And notice it gets even more specific, and this is why we need to be mature and be equipped for maturity. They operate by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So false teachers aren't 
they're not just in error, like all of us are to some degree. All of us have errors in what we believe, and we're trying to be corrected by the Word of God and by good preaching and teaching. No, what the false teachers are doing or, or what is at stake in immaturity are, are teachers and false teachers that operate in craftiness in deceitful schemes. Deceit is not innocence. They're schemes. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.17. Interestingly enough, when you read your New Testament, pay attention to how much false teachers and false teaching is addressed. All through your Bible, the false prophets and false priests in the Old Testament in the New Testament, false teachers infiltrating the church from the very beginning. And it's continued unto this day. 2 Corinthians 2.17, For we are not like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Now, pastors are supposed to protect the church from false teaching. Look at what Paul goes on to say later in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2. But we, that's the apostles, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So I would submit to you based on this, pastors are an essential component to a healthy church. They equip the saints. They equip the saints to serve. They equip the saints to build up the body. They equip the saints to protect them from immaturity. They equip the saints so that we're not tossed about, so that we're not blown about, so we're not tricked. So pastors, I would submit to you, are an essential component to a healthy, God-honoring church. Now, what if pastors aren't equipping the church? What if, what if pastors aren't doing this work of equipping, of mending, of setting, of teaching, of doing what they're supposed to do? Well, if equipping propagates maturity, non-equipping would propagate immaturity. This is why it's... This is why for you as the body, it's important for you to understand and know and recognize what pastors are supposed to do based on the Bible. And what's awesome is you've got a lot of scripture that defines specifically what pastors are supposed to do. Here's one of the texts. They equip the saints. They equip the saints. One of the reasons why we wanted to take this theme in this conference is because, uh, again, we feel like it's, it's so needed because there's so much confusion. It's so bizarre. It's, it's just bizarre to me the confusion that abounds with regard to what pastors should do and what they are. Because the New Testament is so clear about these matters. If you would talk to any of the pastors in this room, I think we would all assert and lament the fact that there is, there is a lot of misunderstanding in Baptist churches about the role of the pastor. I think I can speak for all these guys on that. Because we've all experienced it. It's bizarre, some of the conversations we have. So what's, what's happened is the role of pastor, I believe at least, has been misunderstood. It's been redefined. It's been refitted by the culture. And it's been rewired by modern philosophy. People have taken something that's very simple in Scripture and rewired it with modern thinking and modern philosophy and, and thus totally distorted it. And that's what we're dealing with. Let me just give you two examples that I think are prominent in our 2019 experience. Number one, rather than equipping the saints, there's the pastor as motivational speaker. These are caricatures. 
The pastor is a motivational speaker. Where this is the case where the pastor is more like a lawyer or an actor. And he uses the powers of rhetoric. Which I'm using some rhetoric tonight. I want to convince you. But, but the, the pastor uses rhetoric, powerful speech to try to convince people of his position rather than the Bible. This is commonplace. The re- Have you ever heard a sermon where a text is read and then the sermon seemingly had nothing to do with the text that was read? Like, okay, let me read the text and get that out of the way. Now, on to my agenda. Here's what I've got for you. That's why you've got to be, always be testing what's said from the teacher based on what you see in the text. So what does that do to the church if the pastor is just a motivational speaker, a good public speaker or orator? Well, it leaves people stirred up, maybe excited, but what about the long-term spiritual growth? What about the protection from every wind of doctrine? What about the discernment being trained by solid food? Another one that we see and often deal with, I don't have a, I don't have a fun title for this one. Maybe you could think one up for me. The pastor is the desire fulfiller. I told you it was bad. He's just like a manager of the status quo. The people are looking for pastors to keep them happy no matter what. And the pastor's job is to tell me what I want to hear when I want to hear it. Rather than confronting me in my sin, rather than preaching the word, reproving, rebuking, and exhorting, rather than convicting us about our sin, you should console us in our sin. This is something the Scripture warns us against in 2 Timothy 4.3. Again, the last chapter of the last letter Paul wrote, he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And there seems to be a long line of teachers, people ready to fill that role. What does that do to the church? Well, it creates in the church this attitude of this is what we want and this is how we want it, right? It just becomes another venue for fulfilling my desires, right? Giving me what I want. What is a pastor supposed to do? He equips the saints. How does he do it? He does it through teaching. So pastors build up the church. They build it up by equipping. The second part that we see in this text is members build up the church. Members build up the church. So pastors equip the members, look at it, for the work of service. Very broad word, can be lived out in a multitude of ways. And notice in verse 12, for building up the body of Christ. And here's what it looks like in verse 15. Rather, rather than being unstable, speaking the truth in love. Here's how members build up the church. This is a cool little word. It's in fact a verb form of the word truth. We don't have that in English. There's no verb for truth in English. There is in this text. Speaking the truth is, a, is a, an interpretation. The verb literally is truthing. How do you truth? Well, that's what it calls us to do here. The interpretation of speaking the truth in love is good. It's a good interpretation. The only other place this word is used in Galatians, Paul is speaking the truth, so it's a good interpretation, but I think it means more than this, which will be fleshed out in the rest of Ephesians 4 and 5. It's a living of the truth. A living out of the truth in the church. Among these people, truthing. And how do we truth? We truth in love. So there's this balance. There's a balance of truth and there is a balance of love. And we don't want to get them out of balance. We want our churches to be known as places for the truth and also places characterized by love. 
That's rare. That's what we want. Love and truth. And one without the other is unhelpful. Truth without love could be arrogant. Love without truth could be aimless. 1 Corinthians 13, in describing the love in the church, says love rejoices in truth. It's what makes it happy. We truth in love. We also trust in Christ. Notice, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. That's who we're growing up into. We're trusting in Christ. We're growing up into him. Let me remind us, those of us, we're, we're influenced by other teachers. Paul wanted the Corinthian church to know, you don't follow Paul in the same way you follow Christ. Or they're saying, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul. Is Christ divided? No, as Christians preeminently and primarily, we're to be growing up into Christ. And it's a good thing to remember in a day where we have more access than any group ever in history to other teachers, good teachers. We're not growing up into them, although they're very helpful. We're growing up into Christ. We're trusting in him. Look at what he's called here. We grow up in every way into him who is the head. The head is the one who has control, the one who has leadership. He is the source. He is the head. So you see, we're trusting in Christ. We're dependent on him. We're dependent on the head. What does the body do without the head? What is a, how can a body function without a head? It can't. We're vitally connected to the head and must be. We're trusting in Christ. Look what it says in verse 16. From whom? It's because of him. It's through him. It's for him. From whom? The whole body. Joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Not only are we truthing in love and trusting in Christ, we're taking part in the body. We're taking part in the body. When the body is functioning as it should, look there at the end of verse 16, when each part is working properly. Essentially, the idea there is each part is energized. Energized. At work. In the right way. What happens? Look at the result. When, when every part is working properly, that makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So there needs to be an engagement of every member in the body. There's no idea of a, of a member that's not serving or a member that's not engaged, which you need to ask, where are you serving? Where are you truthing? This, this is in the context of the church. Where, where are you truthing in the midst of the people of God? Where are you serving? We're supposed to be taking part that's how church growth happens. Notice it. As we take part in the body, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Engaged members make the body grow and the body builds itself up in love. Here again, you see the preeminence of love. The preeminence of love. And, I, and again, I think we as very doctrinally minded people, rightly so, it's right to have a healthy emphasis on knowledge and truth. Because the, the Bible gives you that emphasis. But if we're not loving, if the body's not building itself up in love, there's a disconnect that needs to be rewired. The truth that you love calls you to love other people. So we take part in the body. 
All right, now some application based on all that. Hopefully some provocative application. We'll see. This is pretty simple. This is kind of Christianity 101. That's why it's mind-boggling this is so misunderstood in our day. Hopefully this sermon's not misunderstood. The Christian faith is corporate in its nature. The Christian faith is corporate. It is a collective endeavor lived out in the body of Christ. It's lived out with one another. Sanctification is a corporate project. It's a collective endeavor that takes place in a specific realm, namely the church, the body of Christ. That's what you see here. We're building ourselves up in love. The body builds itself up in love. Connection to the body, therefore, is an obligation. It's not an option. It's a conviction. It's not a matter of convenience. And furthermore, we're not part of the body merely for our individual fulfillment. It's not just about me being fulfilled by these people. No, I'm there also to fill them as a member of the body. That that I am dependent on Christ, but we're also dependent on one another. That we love Christ, but we also love one another. That sounds kind of like the greatest commandment, fleshed out in the life of the church where the Christian life is lived, in the midst of other believers. Now that addresses these problems that we heard about last night of individualism and isolationism that exist in Christian thinking, right? That's easy. I mean, it'd be easy just to study my Bible on my own, not have to deal with phone calls and texts from people who are belligerent. That'd be easy. <clears throat> well, that's not the Christian life. In fact, if you take that route of individualism or isolationism, You weaken yourself and the church. This is is simply God's plan for the Christian life. I mean, how does does a body part severed from the head make any sense in this analogy? You've got to be connected to the head. You've got to abide in Christ. And when you abide in Christ, you're a part of his body. I mean, think about it. Does it make sense for a soldier who's operating in a wartime situation to work in isolation? Or would it be better if he worked in conjunction with an army? Praise God we've got an army. Or if you were in a battle, don't you think you might need someone else? Nobody wants to be in a foxhole by themselves. If you're in hostile territory like we are in the world, like the Ephesians were in Ephesus, you need one another. You need the body, and the body needs you. The body needs you. Or if a roaring lion were hunting you, as he is, the devil prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's out to devour. What, how does it make any sense to be in isolation? Well, I'll just be by myself. That'll increase my odds against that roaring lion. Quite the opposite. Christian life is corporate just to deal with an issue in Baptist world. Biblical church growth is not about numbers, it's about sanctification. When every joint is equipped, each part is working properly, makes the body grow. There has been so much written about church growth since the 1970s. It is astounding. One just has to beg the question, why? Why so much on this subject? Why is there more written on church growth than almost any other theological category? Something that's actually biblical. That's bizarre. 
Maybe it's because people want to be in big churches. Maybe there's a bit of the pride of man that goes along with that desire. I don't know. It's just a possibility. But the, re- the reality stands. There's a lot been written about church growth since the 1970s. Little of it is based on Scripture. Now, most of it, much of it, hopefully at least, and most of the desires and impulses in churches and among pastors today would be good. I mean, my goodness, we want the church to grow. So don't hear me wrongly saying I don't want the church to grow. I do want it to grow. But what is growth? What does it mean for the church to grow? Well, who is this passage talking about when it uses the word makes the body grow? It's talking about members causing one another to grow as they have been equipped by pastors in the church. It's not about numbers. Well, this idea of immaturity, pastors not equipping the church, this idea of the church being about numbers, it's not just something that we've been dealing with in our day. Charles Spurgeon dealt with it in his day as well. Spurgeon dealt with a controversy called the downgrade. And the downgrade was a controversy that that Spurgeon recognized among the Baptists of his day. He keeps it in-house pretty much. The Baptists of Spurgeon's day, though it extended to other denominations as well, he noticed a downgrade in theology and in practice and in Christianity and in churches, a downgrading of theology, a downgrading of the truth. And, And he says all kinds of things. Incidentally, it was in that day, in the days when Charles Spurgeon was a pastor, in the days of the downgrade, that Charles Darwin wrote The Origin of Species. Do you know where Charles Darwin, a man who had desired to be a priest in the Anglican Church, or whatever they call them, he wanted to be a leader in the Anglican Church, do you know where he first allegedly heard about skepticism of the Bible? He heard about that in a church from an Anglican pastor. It was a downgrade. And part of the reason for the downgrade was numbers. Listen to what Spurgey says. The fact is that too frequently religious statistics are shockingly false. Cooking of such accounts is not an unknown art in certain quarters, as we know. It is not falsehood when numbers, is it not falsehood when numbers are manipulated? Friends, there's, there's just so much, there's just so much emphasis in church life today about growing numbers, which again in one sense is a good thing and something that we want. I would just say search the scripture, search the New Testament letters written to churches and see what the heartbeat of the apostles is. It's about growth in holiness. Oh, but growth in holiness isn't really something that can be measured. How do you tangibly, empirically measure that? It's a lot, lot easier to measure some number than growth in faith, growth in love. Paul tells the Thessalonian church, grow in love. How do you measure that? Now, that's tough, but that's what we should be growing in. There's numbers and then there's money. Numbers and money, right? Money equals power. Money equals power. Also in the 1800s, in I believe it's South Carolina, James Thornwell noticed the problem of essentially this influence of money. Listen to what he says. And again, keep in mind, this is the 1800s. Our whole system of operations gives an undue influence to money. 
Where money is the great want, numbers must be sought. And where an ambition for numbers prevails, doctrinal purity must be sacrificed. Right? As, as, essentially, as the numbers get bigger, the doctrine gets flatter. Just makes sense. The root of the evil is the secular spirit of our ecclesiastical institutions. What we want is a spiritual body, a church whose power lies in the truth, in the presence of the Holy Ghost. To unsecularize the church should be an unceasing aim of all who are anxious that the ways of Zion should flourish. What does Ephesians 4 say about biblical church growth? You make it happen. So over to you. Over to you. If pastors don't fulfill their role, the church is not equipped and instability will abound. If the body doesn't do its work in building up the body, the church doesn't fulfill its role, well, think of the consequences of that. Friends, that's why we all need to be serving. You need to be serving in your church, using your gifts. That's the biblical program for church growth. You. There's the program. It's you. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray we would be about that work. We would be engaged in building up the body. I pray as pastors we would be resolute to be equipping the saints for the work of ministry. You grant us faithfulness in that, encouragement for the task. And Lord, we just pray that we would see our churches grow into the full stature of Christ, that that would be our great ambition, desire, and goal after which we strive. And Lord, that we would see our bodies, these local churches, Lord, we'd see them building themselves up in love. We'd see every member got engaged and active, Lord. I just pray you'd stir those members who aren't to activity, to faithful engagement, using their gifts for your glory. God, help us to equip them and encourage them to do it, Lord, that Jesus would be exalted and that we would see the church grow in Jesus' name. Amen.